Father, we thank you for, for songs like that that remind us what our true vocation in life truly is. We may be surgeons or attorneys or teachers. We may be administrative assistants, nurses. But Father, this truly isn't our vocation. Our vocation is we're worshipers. And from this, everything flows, everything we say, everything we do. And there are times, Father, where songs like that just remind us that we will. Even when we don't feel like it, we will. We will let faith rise up. We will cause our heart to believe. And Father, I pray that as we open your word today that we would do it again. We would let faith rise that we would allow our faith to move beyond belief and to remind us of our true vocation in this life. It's to worship you and to allow everything else to flow from it. So as we open up your word, we pray that you would open up our, not just our minds, but our hearts to receive what it is that you're saying to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do take your seats. Good morning. Uh, thank you, team. Welcome to Central. Glad that you can join us for our final message in our Faith Beyond Belief series. Thank you, Joel. And uh, I pray that uh, today's message entitled The Heights of Faith would truly remind you and encourage you with regards to what your true vocation in life truly is. We're continuing from the passage Steve started last week, which was Hebrews 11. As Steve finished at verse 29, we're picking up at verse 30. So it's Hebrews 11, verses 30 through 40. You're not going to see this on the screen. Uh, if you need a Bible, we've got some Bibles scattered around the auditorium. It's an older technology, which means it's the printed page. If you have an electronic version of the Bible, I would encourage you to open it today because this passage really summarizes key principles that the author of Hebrews is, has kind of unpacked throughout the entire book, and it's there in one verse, in verse 40, and so many sermons I've heard on Hebrews 11, or even message series in Hebrews itself, actually miss the key point. And so what I want to do today is the first part of the message, it's, it's going to lay the foundation. It's going to take us back through the earlier chapters. And then we're going to apply this in an encouragement to us to allow our faith to go beyond belief in one critical area of life. And it's an area that applies to each and every person in this room. So if you have a Bible, open it to Hebrews 11. We're going to read from verse 30. If you need a copy of the Bible, they're in the auditorium. Go grab one and uh, just turn there with me. Hebrews 11, reading from verse 30. The author writes, By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith the prostitute Rahab, <clears throat> excuse me, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I don't have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies.' 
Women received their dead raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. Verse 37, they were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and even in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And here we go, verse 40. Why? Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. That's why. The big idea in today's message from this text is simply this. The heights of faith are found neither in the experiences of the impossible nor in the experiences of the improbable, but in the constancy of the incredible. My question today is, have you forgotten? Are we in danger of overlooking the incredible aspect of our faith from which impossible and improbable things stem? This idea is drawn from Hebrews 11:39 through 40, the summary of this incredible sermon on faith. These, we read, the heroes were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Look at the verse here. The first word is these, the heroes. They pressed in. They experienced the impossible. Dead being raised to life. The mouths of lions being shut. They experienced the improbable. Victories over armies. Gentiles being welcomed into the family of God. And they were commended for their faith as a result. The improbable is all over this sermon. The impossible is filled with it. And yet... This was not the promise for which they waited. The promise for which they waited was more incredible than even the impossible and the improbable. And this text, verse 40, tells us why they waited. It's the only verse in the entire book that tells us why they had to wait. And this waiting is the something better that the author communicates in verse 39. This is the reason for their wait. Together with us, they would be made perfect. This means that God in his wisdom reserved their perfection until we could share in it with them. So the waiting here has to do not with the experience of the impossible, Jesus being raised from the dead, not in the experience of the improbable, victories, no, it had to do with them being made perfect together with us. Well, it begs the question, doesn't it? What does being made perfect actually mean? Now, this word, made perfect, is actually a key word in the entire book of Hebrews. 
So in addition to Hebrews chapter 6, which talks about maturity, and that connects to perfection and being made holy, we also have the idea in chapter 12, the passage that Steve began this series with, the passage that says Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. In addition to those two ideas, this word occurs on at least 11 occasions throughout the book. And in those references, there are at least three critical ideas that help us understand what being made perfect means. And when we understand what being made perfect means, we actually understand why they needed to wait. And we also understand the incredible nature that, and the incredible gift that we have been given. So three ideas. What does made perfect mean? Firstly, in the book, one of the ideas is that the Old Testament rituals, they can't perfect. So we see a number of scriptures there. This is one of them, Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. A number of our songs today had that theme, weak, usefulness, or useless. And the author tells us why. For the law made nothing perfect. Hold on to that. The law makes nothing perfect. And a better hope is introduced. And through this hope, we draw near to God. The law made nothing perfect as hard as people try to make it. Now, as a child, I grew up allergic to a number of medicines that they gave kids back then. There was nothing wrong with a medicine the problem was with my biological makeup. The flaw was with me. And the medicine only revealed that fact. It didn't cause it. In exactly the same way, the law that was given by God was perfect in every detail. Nothing was wrong with it. But there's something wrong with us. So the law, in a sense, was designed as an x-ray machine. It revealed the problem but it couldn't fix the problem. If we think about it, no law has ever been introduced that could stop someone from being stupid. The law can't do that. The law reveals when people are being stupid. There's some things that the law simply can't do. For example, all the legislation in the world will not stop me from kissing my wife. They won't abolish kissing. It just can't do it. And let's be honest, of all the laws we have to contend with, the most troubling of all are the in-laws, right? <laughs> now, there are some things, the author of Hebrews says, that the law cannot do. The law cannot make someone perfect. It, it just can't do it. So again, bring it into the idea of Hebrews chapter 11. All of these heroes, they were commended because they did the impossible and the improbable. But that wasn't the promise. The promise was that they would wait to be made perfect with us. Why would they need to wait? Because the Old Testament system, the laws, and the sacrificial system couldn't make them perfect. It begs the question, what can? And this is the second idea in made perfect in Hebrews. Perfection comes through Jesus. Perfection comes through Jesus, 10.14, 11.40, 12.23, the same word is used. 10.14 is a very famous one. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. 
key verse. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So the sacrifice of Jesus has a permanent result for Christians, for those reading the letter, and even for the Old Testament heroes. Not only for their past, but also for our future. And the perfection of Jesus was revealed to be necessary by the law because the law revealed the problem. It didn't deal with it. Something else was required to deal with it. And this sin issue revealed by the law was dealt with through the death of Jesus. And so once and for all time, Hebrews says, chapter 6 through chapter 9, our sins have been forgiven and, he says, our consciences have been cleansed. A key idea in, in Hebrews is the fact that when the Old Testament heroes would go into the, into the temple and they would make a sacrifice for their sin, their sins would be covered, but their conscience wouldn't be cleansed. And that's why last week Steve spent some time talking about Moses and the scars of the past that often prevent us from stepping into our future. And the wonder, the author of Hebrews says, about the perfecting work of Jesus is it doesn't matter what we've done. It doesn't matter how far we've strayed. Jesus makes perfect all those who are being made holy. Our past no longer has the right to control our present or our future. Jesus' death does that. So again, put it into the context of Hebrews 11, 39, and 40. All of these heroes experienced the impossible and the improbable, but what they needed was the incredible. What they needed was to know that their sins had been forgiven and that their sin was not stopping them from walking continually with a clear conscience in a clear, unbroken relationship with God. The Old Testament rituals couldn't do that, but the death of Jesus could. Welcome to Hebrews 1 through 9. That's it. It's a key idea. Now, in this moment, we could stop, we could say, thank you very much, I could do the application, and we could all go home, right? Okay, but there's more to this phrase, made perfect, than that. The third idea is this, and it's actually a troubling one. It's that Jesus was also someone who was made perfect, Rather interesting, isn't it? To make you all kind of comfortable with this idea, let's just read these three texts. It's not just in Hebrews that we are being made perfect through the sacrifice of Jesus, doing something that the Old Testament law and the rituals never could. It's actually that Jesus was being made perfect. Look at this, Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists... Reference back to Hebrews chapter 1. Should make the pioneer of their salvation, Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, perfect through what he suffered. Oh, wait a minute. Jesus was made perfect through what? What he suffered. Not an isolated verse. Have a look at this. Hebrews 5, 9. And once made perfect, and once made perfect, he became the source of internal salvation for all who obey him. Not an isolated verse, 728. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son who has been made perfect forever. Now that's 
summarize what we've got so far then. Being made perfect is a crucial theme in Hebrews. It's the reason why the heroes had to wait. It's tied to the relationship between Jesus and the Old Testament rituals that have been unpacked in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews. But finally, it's also an experience of Jesus himself. So clearly, the experience of Jesus is designed and written up as an example for you and I so that his example can become our experience, that we actually can be made perfect as well. But it does beg the question, doesn't it? Why would Jesus, the sinless one, need to be made perfect? Why would Jesus need to be made perfect? And what's this got to do with my faith? Well, let me give the definition for this first, and let's unpack it from here. Because the application of this is profound, if we really step into it. In fact, it could be more than profound for some of you. It may well actually be freeing. Because in what we're about to unpack, you may well discover that the reason that you are struggling to worship is not because there is something wrong with you, but because Jesus has put everything right with you. How freeing is that? And all it will need for you to step into that is faith. Nothing else. Here's the definition. Christ being made perfect in Hebrews refers to him being qualified to deliver eternal salvation. That's what we've just looked at. He's qualified to deliver eternal salvation, what the law could not do. Because it was designed to reveal sin, Christ could. But it also refers to his inner development in preparation for his intercessory ministry as the eternal high priest. This is the part we overlook. So there are two ideas here, there aren't there? One is, he's made perfect to deliver our salvation. Secondly, he's made perfect to deliver or to prepare for his intercession on our behalf. Two ideas in perfection. One, he delivers our salvation. Secondly, it prepares for his intercession. Prepares for his intercession. That's why Jesus was made perfect. He needed to deliver our salvation. Secondly, he prepares for his intercession. This begs another question then. Okay, how was Jesus made perfect? How was Jesus made perfect? When you look at Hebrews, we've already looked at one scripture, Hebrews 2.10, which tells us the pioneer of their salvation was made perfect through what he suffered. Jesus' perfection here applies to and is unpacked through his earthly struggle. He was made perfect through his earthly struggle. I'll pick up on this in a little while. Secondly, he was made perfect through his sinless death, which fulfilled the requirements for the forgiveness of sins. But here's the important part. He was made perfect through his exaltation to glory and honor, where he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and in this moment, and I pray you get this in this moment, the greatest homecoming of all time, human nature, perfect human nature, and perfect divine nature coexist perfectly and powerfully, making e eternal intercession for us possible. 
In other words, Jesus is made perfect through an earthly struggle that leads to an, a heavenly exaltation. And in a moment, you will see the implication of this. This means if his example is to be our experience, how are we made perfect? We are made perfect through earthly struggle that results not for us in a heavenly exaltation. Not yet. What it results in is heavenly intercession on our behalf. This is Pentecost Sunday, folks. Pentecost Sunday is the day we remember that Jesus went up in order for what? The Spirit of God to come down. Jesus is made perfect, not simply because his own personal sanctification, his own holiness needed it. He's also made perfect because his vocation demanded it. His vocation, his calling in life after his exaltation was to intercede for you and for me. And this is made possible because now perfect humanity and perfect divinity coexist in a way that he can pray because he gets it. He gets it. Now, all of this, I've wrapped up what could be a six-month theology course into about three minutes. Okay? But if you're with me, okay, this is profound because it tells us how are we made perfect. He, by one sacrifice, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. He has made perfect forever. How are we made perfect? By remembering that the actions of the perfected Christ perfect the Christian. You can read Hebrews 5, 8, and 9 at home. The actions of the perfected Christ interceding for you and me actually makes our perfection possible. How is, how is this possible? Remember that the, the mode, the methods through which Jesus was made perfect, earthly struggle, earthly struggle. Not because he'd done something wrong, but because he was doing everything right. Earthly struggle. Let me ask you this. Have you ever gone through earthly struggle? Are you going through earthly struggle right now? How many times I wonder if you thought or asked yourself, God, am I going through this because I've done something wrong? Is there some kind of sin, unknown sin, unconfessed sin, that is blocking me and my relationship with you? I mean, if that were true, how foolish would that be? Would that be how, who on earth can confess sin of which we're not even aware? And so we struggle. What do we do with those earthly struggles? Remember that the actions of the perfected Christ perfect the Christian. Look at this verse from Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. This kind of tells us what do we do when we're struggling and we don't know what's going on. We've done the kind of daily inventory. We've processed everything. We've gone through everything. And life just seems to be tough. And we just can't figure it out. What do we do? Paul tells us what he did. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. I could have gone to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. That's another example of this. Familiar passage, right? 
Paul is struggling with a thorn in the flesh. Some people think it was his eyes. Some people think it was uh, basically some people tormenting him. It was more than likely, in my view, a physical ailment of some kind. But three times he went before God and he said, God, please take this thing away from me. What is he saying? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Notice three times of going before God. It shouldn't be understood of Paul on his knees by the side of his bed or something saying, God, take it away from me, take it away from me, take it away from me. This is a prolonged struggle that Paul had on three separate occasions. He felt he was getting the better of him. He goes down on his knees and he says, God, I'm sick and tired of this struggle. Do something. And have you been there? This is what God says. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. What kind of answer is that? Therefore, Paul says, when he realizes what God is saying, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest in me. During a season of intense church conflict many years ago, I relearned something that I always thought I knew but realized that I actually didn't. I came to a deep realization of God's love despite a climate of hostility. Now, such a discovery may seem strange to you. After all, I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be an expert in God's love. You know, proclaiming it to other people, knowing it in my own life. But the reality was through that intense period of conflict, that intense struggle in my greatest weakness, God was actually doing probably the greatest work on developing my own soul. Did I sign up for it? No. Would I sign up for it again? No. But I thank God I went through it because I rediscovered something. Was I perfect in this whole thing? Probably not. But I can honestly say in this series, in this season of conflict, I was the one being mediating between two sides trying to work something out. It wasn't as if I caused the thing. And yet there I was right in the middle of it. But in that season, when I was saying, God, won't you stop this? It was as if God was saying to me, my power is made perfect in weakness. Months and years later, someone asked me what I had learned from that, how it had affected my ministry. And and as I thought about it, I realized that there was something about my experience of weakness that enabled me to be more compassionate with others in their struggles. It's what some would call the gift of strength in weakness. Also, what I discovered was I became, what, more like Jesus. I became quicker to worship in that season of struggle because I was willing to accept that what perfected Christ, earthly struggle, is also what perfected me. The condition with this, of course, is that I was willing to embrace my season and step into it. In this text, Paul says that his thorn in the flesh wasn't removed. So what changed? What changed was that he came to recognize the presence and the strength of God within that very situation. And the promise he heard from Christ was, my grace is sufficient for, for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. 
And in a sense, my earthly struggle was perfecting me in as much as it was leading me into a deeper experience of worship in such a profound season of struggle. And all of you who've ever gone through that or are going through it right now will realize that in a moment like this, we're left with a choice. Will we worship God or won't we? And the point that the text of Hebrews is making to a group of people who are experiencing profound struggle, not necessarily because they've done something wrong, but because they're doing everything right. They've come to a point of believing in Jesus, and our crazed emperor decides to take all of what's wrong with Rome out on these believers. And in this profound season of struggle, they're faced with a choice. Will we worship God in a moment of weakness when everything seems to be wrong with the world and nothing right with me, will I do it, yes or no? And the author is writing to say, yes, you will, and yes, you should, because faith is a choice. No amount of correct doctrine will enable you to push through earthly struggle like a choice to worship. That is faith. And Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to believe, to to please God. Faith. The actions that perfected Christ, earthly struggle, and the commitment to continue believing perfect us too. So Jesus' earthly struggle, his heavenly exaltation, parallels us. We have this earthly struggle, but we are not left alone. We have this heavenly intercession. Jesus went up so the Spirit of God could come down. We do not have to go through this alone. All it takes is a step of faith. That's why I love these songs we sang today. I will. I will. I choose. Let me ask you, when you're going through your struggle, are you saying, I will? And I choose to believe because that's how we're made perfect. Secondly, in such seasons, what we realize is this. Faith, not belief, drives inner development is exactly what we just said. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, this is the passage on maturity. We get a grip here with, uh, we get the grips with what the problem for the Hebrews was. Their belief was stronger than their faith. They thought that maturity had more to do with elementary doctrine than it did with choosing to believe even when it was easier not to. And so the author in Hebrews 6 says, listen, leave behind a preoccupation with the elementary doctrines and move on to the significance of the finished work of Jesus. He says, because if you don't, you will slip back. If you don't, you will not make it past the struggle. You see, doctrine does not drive in a development. Faith does. Because faith takes truth. And the Spirit applies the truth to our heart and changes us from the inside out. Now think about this. How many people have you ever been around who know doctrine better than anybody else, but they're the most miserable people you can spend five minutes with? Crusty, doctrinally correct believers are missing their vocation in life because their vocation is to worship. And worship is an act of faith. It is a choice. And in that choice, we take doctrine and we apply it to our lives. But don't go thinking that we are fulfilling our vocation in life if we are 
continuing to cram correct doctrine in our mind because faith, not belief, drives inner development. Are you taking the truth that you know and applying it to your life? The author of Hebrews in Hebrews 6 says, if you're not, you will never push past the struggle. Oh, you may not curse God and die, but you will not believe God and experience true life. Where does all of this lead? I, I think the next two points are the most important thing. How we may perfect. We learn submission not only for our sanctification, but for our vocation. This is the passage, Hebrews 7, that talks a lot about this. We go through struggle in life, not simply because there is something wrong with us, but because God is putting all things right with us. Jesus didn't need to learn submission to God through struggle because of disobedience. No, Jesus needed to learn submission to God because of his vocation as an intercessor. Think about this. Jesus didn't need to learn to submit to God because of, simply because of his own sanctification. He was perfect. He was without sin. No, Jesus needed to learn submission to God for his vocation, to, which was to intercede for you and for me. You see, his perfection was completed at the moment of his glorification because from that moment on, his intercession for you and me was empowered through his identification. Let me explain what I mean. It's complicated. Have a look at this passage. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, that's his glorification, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. See, he is perfect. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus gets the struggle that you have. Have you ever spent time with someone sharing the deepest struggles of your heart and you just know they get it? On the other side, have you ever shared the struggles that you're going through and they just don't get it? Just this week, we were hosting a number of churches through Central, and uh, one of the churches was Doug Swink's church. How many of you still remember Doug? He was a middle school pastor here, right? And uh, one of the, uh, Doug was telling me that uh, in the day, somebody had said, Matt, I still remember you, Pastor Doug, standing on stage with the ultrasound of your first baby. You know, and Doug was like, man, that's 25 years ago. You still remember that? And he was like, yeah. And then he got into a conversation about kids. And, and uh, on the table, there was me, there was Pastor Lynn, there was Mike, there was Doug, and there was somebody else from Doug's, uh, from Doug's church. And so we started talking about kids. And so Pastor Mike looked at the other guy and said, yeah, you know what it's like, right? Kids. And the guy just looked and said, actually, I've got no idea what you're talking about. I don't have kids. Stop the conversation dead in its tracks. What's the point here? Jesus has kids. God has kids. You. Jesus was made perfect through his struggle, not because there was something wrong with him, 
but because God was putting everything right with you. You're God's kids. Jesus gets it. Jesus gets your wrestle. He gets your struggle. He gets the fact that sometimes it's really hard to muster up faith and step into worship. He gets it. Let's apply this. If it's true that Jesus struggled with submission to God, not because of his sanctification, but because of his vocation as an intercessor, is it therefore not also true that maybe you struggle in this world, not because of your own sanctification issues, there's something wrong with you, but maybe because of your vocation. Maybe you struggle because of your vocation. What's your vocation? Let's go back to Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. All of these, these people, they all waited because God had something better planned for us. And that only together with us would they be made perfect. What is being made perfect? It's the idea that the Old Testament ritual, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrificial system cannot make us right with God. The only thing that can is the sacrifice of Jesus. What is our vocation? Our vocation is we are worshipers first and foremost. Maybe you struggle not because of your sanctification, but because of your vocation. Maybe you struggle because on the inside, God wants you to, to step into the reality that you are first and foremost His son, His daughter, His child, and there is nothing, nothing you have done, nothing you will go through that will ever stop you from being His child. And maybe the greatest act of faith in our life, more than the pursuit of the impossible, Praying for miracles may be more important than praying and believing God for the improbable. Is actually holding fast to the incredible. You are God's child. You are right with God, not because of anything that you have done, but because of what he has done. And as John Piper says, mission exists because worship does not. Once worship is all there is, mission is no more. My vocation is not a missionary. My vocation is not a pastor. My vocation is I'm a worshiper of Jesus, and what I do flows from it. The same is true for you. Maybe you struggle in life. Maybe you are tempted to quit on worship. Maybe you are tempted to quit on so many things, not because there's something wrong with you, but because God wants to remind you over and over again that your primary vocation is stepped into simply on the basis of faith. I will I will. Hebrews 9.13. And the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a hypha sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean. Sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. This is the Old Testament system. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. You see, our service is driven by our worship, not the other way around. Here's the point. We struggle 
because of what's right with us and what's ahead of us. What's ahead of us, folks? One day, everybody will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Those of us who have done it in this life will do it voluntarily in the next life, but those of us who have not will do so involuntarily, and what an awful sight that will be. That's what's ahead of us, worship. We struggle because that's ahead of us and not necessarily because of what's wrong with us and what's behind us. Friends, if you're wrestling with something and you've gone before God over and over again and God doesn't seem to be uh, kind of revealing what's wrong, well, maybe there isn't anything wrong. Maybe God's just reminding you who you are. You're a worshiper, that's it. So you know what you do in a situation like that? This. You do not allow your current struggle to rob you from living in what you've already attained by faith. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 compares the, the heavenly Jerusalem, okay, with the earthly Jerusalem. And, and he writes in such a way as to say that we, by faith, when we just muster up our faith, even in the presence of struggle, and step in and worship God, it's as if in that moment, heaven comes to earth. It's as if in that moment, we, we kind of worship with all of the saints through all of history. And that moment is as real, the author of Hebrews says, to us as it was what we experience now was to the saints in the Old Testament. Right now, he says, we can penetrate the sanctuary of heaven by faith in company with believers from all time because of the new and living way opened by Jesus in his death and his exaltation. Let me wrap this up with this question. Have we lost the sense of awe and wonder at the finished work of Jesus? The height of faith it's not experiencing the impossible. I want to suggest to you that the impossible flows from the incredible. The height of faith isn't experiencing the improbable. No, the improbable flows from the incredible. And if we want to experience the impossible, things we cannot explain, things that only God can do, if we want to experience the improbable, God fulfilling our dreams and so much more, then we have to get back to our vocation. Our vocation is we worship God first and foremost. We worship God above all else. That is the incredible. Everything flows from this. Let me ask you, have you lost your sense of awe and wonder at the effect of the finished work of Jesus? This hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday isn't the only time that you can connect with Jesus. Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, has opened up a new and living way. This reminds us that we don't do this alone. We do this in the company of friends. But have you lost your sense of awe wonder? Let me also ask you this. What are you doing? What practical steps do you need to put into your life to make sure that you never lose the awe and wonder at the finished work of Jesus? What things do you need to put in place to remind yourself that everything you do for Jesus is based on who you are to Jesus and what he's done for you? When I became convinced of this, I decided to do something. And you've been looking at this cabinet probably, or you've glanced at it throughout a service. This is what I would call my wunderkammer. 
It's a German phrase that basically means a wonder cabinet. I was turned on to the idea in the early 90s when I went to visit Wipke, my wife's uncle, in the Black Forest of Germany. Now, uncle Dieter was quite eccentric. He'd never married. He had a little news agent in a small German town. And, and when we went there, we went into the apartment, and the first thing he did is he took me into the living room, and he took me to a cabinet, which he kind of opened. And in this cabinet, there were all of these little knickknacks that he had picked up from around the world. I discovered that this was a kind of a German tradition, that from the 16th and the 17th century, Europeans used to travel around the world, and as they would do that, you know, the enlightened ones after the enlightenment and everything else, they would pick up little knickknacks from around the world, they would take it home, and they would put it in a cabinet to remind themselves of how awesome and incredible the world was. Dieter's Wunderkammer. Yeah, I thought, yeah, that's a, a kind of a nice thing. And until a number of years later, when we took our children to Dieter's and he would take them to the, the Wonder Cabinet, my kids would be fascinated and they would always leave taking a piece of Wonder home with them. Sometimes it was a rock, sometimes it was a coin. Sometimes it was something else, but they would never leave that place without taking a piece of wonder. And what I would often consider a chore, visiting Uncle Dieter, my kids would consider a joy because there was something about the wonder cabinet that actually inspired them. And it got me thinking, what do I need to do to remind myself over and over again that everything I do flows from what Jesus has done for me? What do I need to do to remind myself that I am a worshiper first and foremost? My vocation is worship, and I will struggle in this life not simply because I have done something wrong or other people are wrong. Sometimes I will struggle in life because God wants to take me back to the fact that I am a worshiper first and foremost and invite me into that relationship over and over again. And so what I did, I decided that when I would travel around the world, I would bring a piece of the world back with me. And so, for example, any of you know what this is? It just looks like a little cup, right? This is the Pythagoras cup. Any of you know the story with this one? Pythagoras, you've heard Pythagoras' theory, right? He, he basically came up with a cup, and it's got a little suction mechanism in there that if they poured too much wine into the cup, it would actually drain out to the appropriate level because he would get a little bit tipsy when he would have to lead some of the town meetings. Now, why, why would I get this? When I went to, I've done a number of trips. I've led trips to the Holy Land. I've led trips to Turkey. And, and then the, the final kind of set, really, for anyone is kind of doing the journeys of Paul around the Mediterranean. And I was leading a group of believers around the Mediterranean on a cruise ship, retracing the steps of Paul. And there I am, standing on the island of Rhodes, as this story was being told. And I kind of looked around, and it's kind of one of those heart moments for me. I thought, God... What did I do to, to get the blessing of this? Do you know what I did? Decided to worship Jesus. So I bought this cup. And it's been in my office ever since. Each piece in here is a story. 
Any of you know what this is? This is uh, a tribal Filipino, uh, you know, kind of, what do we call it, quiver? But it's actually in my office on the wall, there's also the, uh, it's not a bow actually, it's one of the, you know, the blow-through ones. This was uh, given to me basically by some um, Filipino tribes people thanking me for the fact that we sent Simon Gill uh, to minister on an island that, in the Philippines that was war-torn and desperate, agricultural issues. Simon went out there, and what I remember with this one is the sacrifice that Simon paid, because not long after giving this, Simon actually died. He died. Died on the mission field. See, every time I look at this, I just remember that Simon died a happy man. Why? Because he was fulfilling his vocation in life. What was his vocation? It wasn't to be a missionary. It was to be a worshiper and then just to go where God led him. Every piece in this cabinet has a, has a story. This one, this is home. I'm told this is a, a booth. I would call this a telephone box, but apparently it's not a box, it's a booth. Again, it just reminds me when I look at this that the only thing that I've done in life that counts for anything is making that decision to follow Jesus and obey him wherever he led. Because that's my vocation. And, and folks, there are times with all of these things, there were times in every single one of these scenarios where I was tempted not to step into it. And all it took in that moment to step in was a step of faith. And in moments like that, my faith had to step up to the plate, not my belief. And let me suggest to you that in your life, there are going to be moments of intense struggle, not because you've done something wrong, but because God wants to take you back to the fundamental choice that makes the impossible and the improbable possible. And that is, will you worship Jesus even when it seems to make no sense at all? Will you? Because I tell you what, the author of Hebrews is saying to these, to these believers who are hard-pressed on every side, if you step up and recognize that without faith it's impossible to, uh, to please God, if you step up and exercise your faith, the future that awaits you is far more glorious than the struggle that you are going through. Church, I can tell you from my own experience that what's true for them is true for me and it's true for you. Put the awe and the wonder back into your life. Realize that your worship of Jesus is the most important thing. Everything else flows from this.